Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville was first settled in the late 18th century by James White, who established a fort at the confluence of the Holston and French Broad Rivers. This strategic location played a crucial role during the westward expansion of the United States, and Knoxville soon became the capital of the Southwest Territory in 1790. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Knoxville experienced a period of industrial expansion with a strong focus on manufacturing and textile production. This economic growth was accompanied by urban development, and the city's skyline began to evolve with the construction of notable buildings and landmarks. The 20th century brought about further changes and modernization. Knoxville gained international attention as the host city of the 1982 World's Fair, which played a significant role in revitalizing the downtown area and left a lasting legacy. Today, Knoxville stands as a vibrant city with a diverse cultural scene, thriving economy, and a rich historical heritage. Its museums, historic districts, and landmarks serve as a testament to its storied past, while its dynamic present reflects a community that continues to grow and evolve. Escalating crime has long been a concern for residents of the Marble City compared with similarly populated cities. And in 2004, the murder of one young woman caused Tennesseans across the state to question the way they caught their killers. Jonna Hope Berry was born on August 26, 1983, and lived in Bristol, Tennessee for most of her life. She graduated from Tennessee High School in Bristol, where she had been a cheerleader and one of the smartest girls in school. Everyone who knew her only had great things to say about her. She was kind and caring to everyone she met, a wonderful friend, sweet, outgoing, and loved children. She was also very close to her family, and after graduating from high school in 2001, she went to East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, which was only about 25 miles from her hometown. Regardless of distance, Jonna remained close to her parents and called them frequently. In the summer of 2004, she was looking at a very bright future. She had gotten engaged to her longtime boyfriend, Jason White, and had just completed her classes at Eastern Tennessee State. She would be taking part in the university's graduation ceremony in December, graduating magna cum laude with a degree in criminal justice and criminology. But 21-year-old Jonna wasn't waiting for the ceremony to begin her postgraduate life. Shortly after she completed her final classes at East Tennessee State in August of 2004, she moved to Lansing, Michigan to begin law school. She was actually, Kath, the youngest woman ever to be admitted to the school at the time. Wow, that's really studly. Jonna was moving to Lansing with her fiancé, Jason White, who had also been admitted to the law school. But after being in law school for just a few short weeks, Jonna realized that the law was not the career path she wanted to take. She decided to move back to Tennessee to get a master's degree in psychology so she could become a child psychologist and help children in need. Understandably, her fiancé Jason was disappointed she'd be moving away, but he understood her need to go back. And they promised to talk to each other all the time and see each other as often as they could. Jonna moved to Knoxville to attend the University of Tennessee. She planned to work on her application to graduate school, and in the meantime, she was planning her wedding and working two jobs to make ends meet. She worked part-time at a jewelry store in the mall, and she also worked part-time at Peninsula Hospital, where she managed activities for children. 
When Jonna arrived in Knoxville, she reached out to a friend from undergrad named Jason Amumi. He had an extra room in his apartment, and he offered to let her move in and split the rent. Jason's girlfriend also happened to be a good friend of Jonna's. So, Kath, going forward, because we have Jason White and Jason Amumi, we're now going to call them roommate Jason and fiance Jason. Sounds good. Sounds like a deal? Sounds like a deal. In the early morning hours of Monday, December 6, 2004, a 911 call came into the Knoxville County Sheriff's Office at 4.14 a.m. The call was from a clerk at a convenience store who said a bloody man who had clearly been stabbed ran into the store and asked the store clerk to call 911. When the clerk handed the phone to the bloody stranger, he identified himself to police dispatch as roommate Jason. He told the dispatcher that he awoke to find a strange man in his apartment, and when he confronted the stranger, the man shoved him down and stabbed him in his chest and hit him in the face. He also said that his roommate was still in the apartment, and when he ran to get help, he could hear her screaming. When sheriff's deputies arrived at the apartment building where roommate Jason and Jonna lived, they found Jonna lying face down at the entrance of the apartment building. She was still alive, but was unable to respond to any of their questions. She had stab wounds all over her body, and deputies could see obvious defensive wounds on her hands and arms. Paramedics rushed her to the hospital, but she died shortly after arriving at the emergency room. She had been stabbed more than 20 times, and there was no sign of sexual assault. To investigators, that many wounds often indicated a prior relationship between the victim and the killer. Roommate Jason was also rushed to the emergency room. He had been stabbed nine times and was in satisfactory condition in the hospital. And Kathy, seeing pictures of him in the hospital as I did the research, you could see cuts on his face and on his arms. They looked rather superficial. I think only one or two of them actually had a bandage over it. Otherwise, they were still exposed. But one of the things that I read is that because his cuts were so superficial, police were like, huh, that's quite a disparity between the ones you received and the ones Jonna received. But there was also a wound on his right hand, and it looked like a wound that was not uncommon for them to see. And that is when somebody was stabbing another person, their hand would get bloody and it would slip from the handle of the knife to the blade. And roommate Jason's cut was exactly that kind of wound. When detectives began scouring the crime scene for clues, they noticed two things right away. There was no sign of forced entry on the apartment's front door, and the knife used in the attack was part of a set they found in the kitchen. Crime scene techs discovered three blood trails at the apartment. Two of them led out the front door, and one led out the back door. And Kathy, this back door was actually this apartment itself's back door, and then there was a set of stairs that led to the backyard. When you say this apartment itself, you mean her own personal unit? Yeah. And Kath, you mentioned that Jonna was found at the apartment's entrance. Detectives noticed that when they canvassed the building, there were blood smears on every door in this apartment building. And it was a fairly small apartment building. And Jonna and roommate Jason lived on the third floor. So were they saying that she was trying to get in everyone's unit? Or knocking How or somehow sad. trying to get help. That's terrible. Nobody answered their door. Oh. Which I get that too, but how sad. Yeah. Fiance Jason was interviewed for about four hours a few days after Jonna's murder. Investigators were able to rule him out as a suspect once they confirmed that he was in Michigan at the time of the attack. Early in the investigation, police thought they might have a suspect. Because there was no forced entry on the front or back doors, and as we mentioned, the knife from the kitchen was used in the attack, 
coupled with roommate Jason's insignificant cuts in comparison to Jonna's deep cuts, detectives believed he was a viable suspect. Roommate Jason was released from the hospital the next day and met with investigators at the apartment to go through what happened the night Jonna was killed. In an episode of Forensic Files 2, it was season three, episode two, they showed snippets of the actual interview between roommate Jason and the detectives. He gave a very detailed description of his activities that night, and they were in the apartment as Jason walked them through what he was saying. He said he'd been at the gym late that night, and when he got home, the front door to their apartment was locked. And he remembered this because he had to dig his key out. Once he got inside, he first went to the bathroom and then went to his bedroom. He set his alarm for 5.30 a.m. and placed the clock on his windowsill. Roommate Jason also told investigators that he went to sleep around midnight, but was awakened a few hours later when he heard Jonna screaming. According to Captain Brad Hall with the Knox County Sheriff's Office, who was one of the detectives assigned to the case at the time, roommate Jason told them Jonna had a history of sleepwalking and having nightmares, and he thought that's what he was hearing. Roommate Jason's bedroom was right next to Jonna's, so he got up to check on her. When he opened his bedroom door, he said he ran into a man who was backing out of Jonna's room. The man shoved Jason back into his bedroom hard enough that he hit his head on the wall and he fell on the bed. The man then started stabbing Jason and Jason balled up into the fetal position to try to protect himself. He ended up kicking the man in the groin and was able to kick the man off of him. Jason got up from the bed and ran out of the apartment as fast as he could to call for help. As the police were working around the clock to find Jonna's killer, her family and loved ones were focused on saying goodbye. Just three days after she was murdered, on December 9, 2004, there was a celebration of Jonna's life at the Paul Cook Memorial Chapel at the funeral home. Her obituary said that flowers would be appreciated and donations could be sent to the Tri-State Baptist Children's Home in Bristol. Nine days after Jonna's death, an article in the Johnson City Press by D. Gooden included an interview with fiancé Jason. And Kath, in this interview, he described how Jonna's mom called him to tell him that her daughter, his fiancé, had been killed. And Jason was basically saying he didn't know anyone in Lansing. Of course, he was freaking out. And in this interview, he was explaining sort of like the little courtesies that people were doing for him, even though he really didn't know him. And he used this woman, Melissa, as an example and said that she heard him screaming and sobbing and she knocked on his apartment door and he let her in and she basically took care of him. She packed his suitcase and helped put him on a plane to get him home because he was such a mess. He said he didn't know her last name, but he was always going to be grateful for her. So it was actually a really nice article. Yeah, that is really nice. Yeah, where he was just, you know, like... Strangers don't do things like that. Correct. In the article, fiancé Jason said that although he and Jonna had been engaged for a year, she loved for him to keep proposing to her. And this actually cracked me up. According to this article, if it had been a while since the last proposal, she would say to him, I think you need to propose to me again. And he said the last time that he proposed to her was in August, four months before her murder, when they went out to float down the Mendota River. During the float, they had to cross under a swinging bridge, and Jason said that at the moment they crossed under the bridge, he got down on one knee and proposed again. He actually had her engagement ring, which she'd left at home before they took this little trip, so he placed the engagement ring on her finger again, and of course, they got a good kick out of it. Jason said the last time he placed the engagement ring on Jonna's finger was when she was in her casket. 
In the article, he explains that he had to put it on her pinky finger because her murder was so brutal that all of her fingers were swollen. He told the journalist that he and Jonna were supposed to be married in just four months. A few days later, Matthew Lakin with the Bristol Herald Courier spoke to Jonna's parents. Mr. and Mrs. Berry said after Jonna moved back to Tennessee from Michigan to attend the university there, she started calling her parents regularly. Mrs. Berry said Jonna would even call and ask her where she could find something at the grocery store. And Kath, this totally cracked me up because my niece and nephews, who are early 20s, they'll do the same thing to me. I could totally see that. Two of them actually called truly within the last week. One of them said, the stamp on my egg carton is three days ago. Are they still good? And my answer was, well, no, because we were always really quick to be like, oh, expired. Don't get food poisoning. But then I thought about Kathy with a C, whose family is like, nope, still good. We got five kids to feed. Right. <laughs> good for a really long time after the expiration date, it turns out. Right. And so yeah, exactly. If only if the kids are eating it, the mom and dad already got new ones. But I Googled it and it said, sure enough, that's a sell by date. Still good for four weeks. But I was like, why am I Googling this? Seriously, right. couldn't you have done that? And then his sister called me right after that. And she's like, my tomato soup from Trader Joe's, which is in a carton, it's past the expiration date. Is it still good? And I'm like, <laughs> first of all, quit letting expiration dates go through. And I asked her, is it sell by or expiration? And she said expiration. And I'm like, smell it, look for mold, taste it. If all of that is fine, get ahead. Exactly. But again, those are lame examples, but they do that all the time. Where I can I'm totally like, see that. Yeah. Well, you like, you it's know like, them well. It's like. We didn't grow up with Google. Why are they calling you? You know what I mean? Like, we all have Google now. Their first (laughs) go-to should be their phone. Right. It is for everything else. I'm sure it's just an excuse to talk to Auntie. (laughs) And I know they listen. So Auntie loves you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. In addition to Jonna asking her mom about where to find stuff in the grocery store, the article said that if Jonna had a bad dream, she'd call in the wee hours of the morning. They last heard from her around 10 p.m. on Sunday, December 5th, their daughter was killed just a few hours later. Mr. and Mrs. Barry said that they still wait for Jonna to call them. Mr. Barry said he still looks at his watch and thinks, oh, Jonna's going to be getting off work about now and she'll be calling me soon, which that totally broke my heart. Oh, completely. All of it does, obviously. Mr. and Mrs. Barry told the reporter that Jonna loved kids and after her death, they found Christmas presents inside her apartment that were intended for the children whom she worked with at Peninsula Hospital. They spent several days tracking down these kids to give them these presents, knowing that Jonna would want them to do that. Mr. Barry said their whole goal was to find out who killed their daughter. He said we were the last ones to see her before they closed the casket, and that was what we promised her. Twelve days after their daughter was murdered, on Saturday, December 18, 2004, Mr. and Mrs. Barry posthumously accepted Jonna's diploma at East Tennessee State University. They walked across the stage in her place, hand in hand. School officials offered to let them sit among the graduates in caps and gowns, but the Barrys declined, preferring to sit apart. Mrs. Barry said this was the graduates' happy day. Kath, I think you know what this reminded me of. We had a friend who lost her son. And her other son, the boy's brother, was able to walk across the stage and accept the diploma on his behalf. I was not there. Kathy was there. And she said there was not a dry eye to be seen. I mean, honestly, it was it was both heartbreaking and uplifting at the same time. Yeah. So I love when schools do this kind of thing. 
I can't imagine how hard it is for the families, but it's a very, very positive gesture. And it's such an amazing way to honor them and the work they've done. Totally. Just before diplomas were handed out, graduates, parents, and professors bowed their heads in a moment of silence for Jana. Her dad said, she was so excited about this day. We'd been planning it for a long time. It just ended in a different way. As we mentioned previously, Jana graduated magna cum laude, and the Berries have their daughter's cap and gown and the wedding dress she was going to wear in April the following year. Meanwhile, the investigation continued. A partial bloody fingerprint was recovered from the blade of the murder weapon. And Kath, I thought this looked like a steak knife that had been bent. It looks like it came from one of those blocks where you have like bigger knives, but then you've got like a row of steak knives there. That's what it looked like to me as well. Crime scene techs did not remove the bloody fingerprint because, as we know from doing this podcast, bloody fingerprints are really, really tough because if you screw them up, they're gone forever. Right. So the crime scene techs took high resolution photos in the hope that they could use the photos to submit the print to the APHIS database. And of course, this is the database law enforcement uses to try to match prints from both criminal records and applications where fingerprints are required. Despite this attempt, the print was too incomplete and there was too much blood smeared on it to enter into the database. So this was a bust. However, there was so much blood at the scene that detectives hoped DNA would provide the answer as to whether roommate Jason was actually Jonna's killer. While the investigators awaited the results of the DNA tests, detectives asked roommate Jason to take a polygraph. On the previously mentioned episode, video was shown from when Jason took the test. It showed the polygraph examiner aggressively talking to Jason after the test. He said, if you didn't do it, why did you fail the polygraph? And you didn't just fail it. You didn't even come close to passing. Now, in this video, Kathy, roommate Jason looked gobsmacked. Only word that really covers it. And he said a couple of times that he had no idea. But after this aggressive posturing by the examiner, roommate Jason actually got mad and started pushing back. And he said, I don't care what the box says. I voluntarily took this test. And if I had something to hide, why would I take it? I live in fear for my life every day, knowing this guy is still out there. The questions that were asked did not lead to any new information. And roommate Jason was allowed to go home. Back at the apartment that Jonna shared with Jason, investigators found a partial shoe print in blood. The print wasn't recovered from the floor, but rather it was on a small piece of cardboard. So, you know, Kathy, sometimes men's dress shirts, when you first get them in the packaging, they're all neatly tied up and all those pins in it and everything. And there's a piece of cardboard in there. That was actually what was on the floor of roommate Jason's room. And the killer stepped exactly on that cardboard. The FBI just happens to maintain the largest shoe print database in the world. They've nicknamed it Soul Searcher, S-O-L-E, and it contains around 30,000 images. Now, the FBI doesn't use it to try and find a particular shoe like the exact shoe a killer was wearing, but rather it compares different characteristics of shapes found on the sole of the shoe, wave patterns, zigzags, circles, that kind of stuff, in order to find the brand and specific make of a shoe. The shoe print found at the crime scene returned 32 possible matches, but FBI technicians, so an actual person as opposed to just this computer program, were able to narrow that down to one that was sold exclusively at Walmart. So, although it was narrowed down, there was still a lot of people out there who could potentially own that shoe. 
When the results of the DNA test on the blood of the crime scene came back, it showed there were three DNA profiles, Jana, roommate Jason, and a third unknown male. The unknown male's DNA was found on the murder weapon, on the doorknob leading out the back door, and in drops of blood found on the back staircase. Unfortunately, there wasn't a match for the unknown DNA in the FBI's CODIS database. Detectives now believe that roommate Jason was telling the truth and was not involved in Jonna's murder. But how did Jason fail the polygraph if he wasn't responsible or at least involved? Detectives sat roommate Jason down with a sketch artist to put together a composite of the attacker. The description he gave was entered into a computer and continually refined by a technician until roommate Jason approved the final image. The killer was described as a white male, five foot eight, with a stocky build and weighed about 180 pounds. He had short brown hair and wore a blue Atlanta Braves baseball cap. But more specifically, Jason's description included the fact that the man had teardrop or as what he called pecan-shaped eyes. He called it pecan. This is the South. Pecan. No self-respecting Southerner calls it anything other than pecan. And I say that as a Californian. (laughs) Yeah. But I don't know what pecan eyes look like. I have almond-shaped eyes. But almond-shaped eyes tend to be level across. And the teardrop eyes, or the pecans, they actually drop down at the outside of the eyes. They're sleepy eyes. Yeah, I guess kind of. I've but never, kind I've of never like, heard of that description it's kind for of an like eye. You take the almond eyes and you just tilt them about 45 degrees. Okay, that's a pretty serious tilt. <laughs> okay, maybe like 20 or 30, maybe 45. Uh, okay. but, basically, but basically, they do droop down from the outer corners. All right, all right. So they're sleepy eyes. They look nothing like pecans. That's the funny <laughs> thing is that pecans don't look like almonds. I don't know, but I sure like the way they taste. So anyway... <laughs> Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code program for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. On December 28th, just over three weeks after Jonna was murdered, the sheriff's office released the sketch to the public. They simply said that the sketch was based on a description from a witness, but declined to identify who the person was. The nightly news showed this composite every night, and the newspapers ran it on a daily basis. 
everyone was doing all that they could with the hope of finding Jonna's killer and getting justice for her family. The continued awareness of what the killer could have looked like led, of course, to a lot of tips to the sheriff's office. One of the tips stood out to detectives on the case. The caller said they should check out a man named Michael Percival. When investigators looked into him, they saw that he lived just a mile or two from Jonna's apartment and had a criminal history of robberies. When detectives knocked on the door of his apartment, he was barefoot. Detectives sat him down to question him and decided they wanted to take him to the station. He pointed to some shoes on the other side of the room that he could put on. So, of course, Kath, they're not going to let him go get the shoes, right? They don't know what might be hiding there, a knife, a weapon or whatever. So one of the two detectives went over to get these shoes. Captain Brad Hall, who we've mentioned earlier, was one of these two detectives and his partner, she picked up these shoes and immediately punched him in the arm. And he looked over to see why she was punching him. And her eyes were huge, like just like, oh, my God, like you're not going to believe this. He looked down at the shoes and they were the exact make and brand that they were looking for. Hopefully her punch was subtle. (laughs) You know, I can imagine like, yeah, it would have to be subtle because I'm sure the guy's like, why she punched him in the arm? (laughs) The guy's like, she has my killer shoes. Exactly. (laughs) At the station, Percival eventually admitted that he was present when Jonna was killed but that he wasn't the one who did the actual killing. He said he and his partner in crime entered and left through the back door, but Percival stayed in the kitchen while his partner stabbed Jonna and roommate Jason. However, not all of what Percival said matched with what happened at the crime scene. First, he said he and his partner forced their way in with a crowbar, but investigators did not find any pry marks on either door. And when they submitted his shoes to the FBI Soul Searcher database, technicians concluded that it was the same brand and make, but they had a different wear pattern. The final blow was that his DNA did not match DNA from the unidentified male subject found in the apartment. Kath, apparently Percival was just an attention seeker, and he would always try putting himself in the middle of investigation so that he could accomplish that. I can't even imagine the type of personality that does that. No. The investigators were now back to square one. The Barry family worked hard to keep Jonna's case in the public eye, and over the next year, they regularly put up billboards, posted a reward, and the composite still ran regularly in the news. But it wasn't enough. On August 26, 2005, on what would have been Jonna's 22nd birthday, relatives and friends held a candlelight vigil to honor her memory and remind the public of her case and to help with the investigation into her murder. According to an article in the Knoxville News Sentinel by Don Jacobs, Jonna's father said it was just something to honor their daughter. Mr. Barry said there wouldn't be a formal program of speakers and hoped that people would come forward to share memories of Jonna with her family and friends. And Kath, one of the things that I know just based on my experience of life When somebody dies, you want people to come forward and tell you the stories. You're exactly right. I've talked about it, obviously, many times on the podcast that I lost my dad when I was eight. So you can't compare it to being the parent of a murdered child or sibling or friend or whatever. But all I wanted to do was talk about my dad. And I wasn't aware of it. But the teachers at the school had told all the kids, don't talk to her about it because they just didn't want to traumatize me. Well, fast forward to seventh grade and a girl in my class, both of her parents were killed in a car accident. And when she came back to school, which was like probably a week later, I went up to her. 
we weren't close friends, but I'd known her, you know, kindergarten through seventh grade at that point. And I said to her, tell me about your mom and dad. Like, what's your favorite memory about your mom and dad? And she looked at me and she's like, nobody else will talk to me about it. Thank you for asking me. But it's true. Like people feel awkward because you don't want to bring it up. You don't want to upset them, what have you. But I can imagine, especially to be the parent of a murdered child, you want their friends to still come see you, to think of you, to be a part of it. Probably the more awkward the death or more difficult the death, I should say. The The harder it is to do. Exactly. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, no, but it's so important. On November 4th, 2005, almost one year after Jonna was killed, her mother, Joan Berry, spoke to the Johnson City Press. She was leading the charge to expand the DNA database available to police in Tennessee. At that time, law enforcement was only able to get DNA samples if somebody was convicted of a violent crime. Mrs. Berry told reporter James Brooks that she'd talked to legislators about expanding that to include anyone who was convicted of a crime, violent or not. In some states, DNA samples are taken when somebody is booked, along with mugshots and fingerprints. Mrs. Berry said that although changing the law won't help Jonna's case, she hoped it would help other families. One year after Jonna's death, the reward for finding her killer had reached $60,000. In an article in the Bristol Herald Courier, 14 months after Jonna was killed, journalist Josh Smith did a kind of where are they now article on Jonna's murder. In the article, the reporter spoke with roommate Jason and noted that he left the state shortly after the murder. Roommate Jason told the reporter that after the attack, he moved to Colorado to be close to his family. He said he remained traumatized by it, but had tried to rebuild his life. So, Kathy, one of the other things that came out is that we had talked about the fact that roommate Jason was essentially cleared by the DNA results when it showed that the blood in the apartment also belonged to another unidentified male. And yet police were still kind of baffled about how did he fail the polygraph if, in fact, he was not responsible or involved in it. It turned out that when police looked into this a little bit further, they wanted to look at the polygraph itself. They wanted to talk to the polygraph examiner. They realized that this examiner not only ignored a series of standard protocols when he conducted the exam, but he also misread the results. They brought a second polygraph examiner in to look at the results, and it was clear to this new examiner that Jason actually did pass the polygraph. And what was funny, Kathy, is Captain Brad Hall, when he saw the video of how the examiner was treating roommate Jason and being so aggressive toward him, the detective made the comment, that is not their job to act like that towards the person who's taking the test. That's the job of the detectives. And he was a little bent out of shape about it. Also in this article, Mr. and Mrs. Barry's grief for their daughter had begun to mingle with frustration and fear that her case had gone cold. Mrs. Barry said they had no idea who killed their daughter or why. Although Knox County Sheriff's investigators had said they had interviewed hundreds of people by that point and collected hundreds of pieces of potential evidence, Jonna's family members were frustrated. Mr. and Mrs. Barry had tried for months, albeit unsuccessfully, to speak directly with Knox County Sheriff Tim Hutchinson about the status of their investigation into their daughter's death. Mrs. Berry said they'd asked numerous times, but they had always been told that he didn't have the time and he had never even given them the courtesy of returning one of their phone calls. 
The sheriff had also drawn criticism because the sheriff's office had not responded to a request from America's Most Wanted to air a segment about the investigation. When asked about the lack of response, the sheriff's spokesperson said they had strong leads and taking part in further publicizing the case would only distract investigators. On May 9, 2007, just over 29 months after Jonna was murdered, the Jonna Berry Act of 2007 was passed by the Tennessee legislature. The new law required that a DNA sample be taken from all persons charged with committing a violent crime in Tennessee. The governor signed the bill into law three weeks later. Then, investigators finally got a DNA hit. On September 24, 2007, nearly three years after Jonna's death, 22-year-old Taylor Olson was indicted on charges of felony murder, first-degree murder, first-degree attempted murder, and aggravated burglary in connection with the December 6, 2004 stabbing death of Jonna Berry. Journalist Kristen Swing of the Johnson City Press wrote that as Knoxville deputies led Olson from the county building to a waiting police car, a bleary-eyed Olson stopped to speak to reporters. He said, I'm sorry. I never meant for this to happen. It was an accident. When a reporter asked how stabbing someone 26 times could be an accident, Olson stopped talking. He was held in Knox County Jail on a $1 million bond. The new Knox County Sheriff, Jimmy J.J. Jones, spoke at a press conference announcing Olson's arrest and said that he had been a person of interest in Jonna's case for four to five months before he was arrested. According to the previously mentioned Forensic Files episode, Olson came on their radar after law enforcement received an anonymous tip that they should look into him for the crime. When detectives looked into him, they saw that he had a juvenile record and was known by deputies for breaking into cars. There wasn't anything major on his record, but law enforcement knew who he was. I have some cousins like that. You do. We talked about the composite sketch that roommate Jason put together. With the pecan eyes. Exactly. When you compared this sketch to Taylor Olson, oh my God, it was crazy how much this computer generated sketch looked like him right down to the pecan eyes. (laughs) When detectives spoke to him, they knew it was a long shot to find the shoes they were looking for because after all, it had been two and a half years. However, both Olson's mother and his ex-girlfriend told investigators that he'd owned an identical pair around the time Jonna was killed. During questioning, Olson initially denied any involvement in her murder and told detectives he didn't know how his DNA was at the crime scene, but he was never there. Police must have made a mistake. Eventually, however, he did admit he was there that night. He said he was looking for unlocked apartment doors so he could steal the keys to a car. He said the back door of Jonna's apartment was unlocked, and so he went into the apartment, but didn't find any keys in the living room or kitchen. So he headed back to the bedrooms. But then Kathy, in a surprising twist, he told investigators that he was the actual victim. He said when he went into Jonna's bedroom, she must have been sleeping with a knife under her pillow or something because she attacked him with the knife and he was just defending himself. Olson said he got the knife away from Jonna and then he went kind of crazy. So, Kath, what happened was that Olson was arrested in Knoxville. This was about three months prior. 
and it was related to a probation violation for an unrelated offense. And at the time, he voluntarily submitted to DNA testing. So his DNA was in this database. But was only recently in the database. Correct. And here's the crazy thing. Sheriff Jones said at a press conference after this DNA match came out that he didn't believe Jonna knew Olson. There was no evidence to support anything other than what he was saying was truthful. He randomly picked her to get her car keys, and this is what happened. And when he went back to the bedrooms, he encountered somebody who was going to put up a fight. Correct. According to Tennessee Bureau of Investigation Director Mark Gwynn, at this point, the John Berry murder case was the largest in the history of the TBI for one case. He said his agency had conducted more than a thousand tests in connection with Jonna's murder and had already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. Jonna's family attended the news conference that announced Olson's arrest and expressed thanks to everyone involved in the investigation. Mr. Barry said a lot of the investigators had spent more time with the Barry family than their own over the last two years and 10 months. Mrs. Barry said that she'd looked forward to the day for so long that she really didn't know how to feel. There were just a lot of mixed emotions. She said even though she no longer would wake up every day wondering what she had to do to find her daughter's killer, Jonna was still gone and she'd always be heartbroken and sad. Almost two months after Taylor Olson's arrest, an article in the Knoxville News Sentinel by Jamie Satterfield included comments by Olson's defense attorney, Gregory P. Isaacs, that raised the idea that another person named Noah Cox might be a suspect in John Berry's murder. Attorney Isaacs filed several motions asking the judge in the case to order prosecutors to turn over all the information regarding Noah Cox's involvement in John's murder. Isaac specifically asked for music CDs, music CD covers, and other documents that proved Cox was at the crime scene at some point. The defense attorney also asked the authorities to reveal any DNA testing that did not implicate his client or that was neutral to Olson. It was considered a key request because among the evidence found inside Jonna's apartment were music CDs that didn't belong to her or roommate Jason. According to the article, attorney Isaac's motions indicated that Cox's name surfaced as a suspect after Olson was arrested and that the Knox County Sheriff's Office had been investigating witnesses about Cox for quite some time. Apparently, the two detectives assigned to the case at one time considered the possibility that two suspects had been involved in Jonna's murder. In fact, Cox and Olson both bore a resemblance to the computer composite sketch that was circulated. And Kath, they really did, as you know. But what was interesting to me and what the police had commented on in the first place when roommate Jason had worked to put the composite sketch together mm -hmm. is, <laughs> I hate to say it, but <laughs> it was the pecan eyes. It was those teardrop eyes that made the difference. And so Taylor Olson had the teardrop eyes, whereas Cox did not. That was really the big difference. Taylor Olson's trial was set to begin on March 3rd, 2008, but it was continued because prosecutors did not timely provide the defense with serology reports from the crime scene. The judge agreed to delay the trial and set a new trial date for five months later. On Monday, March 24th, 2008, Taylor Olson hung himself in his jail cell. Mr. and Mrs. Berry 
and the entire Barry family had lost their chance to get justice for Jonna. The sheriff's office revealed that Olson had torn a bedsheet and hung it from a clothes hook. It was also revealed that Olson left letters for family members in his cell and his defense attorney, Gregory Isaacs, shared some of the contents with the press. According to Isaacs, the letter expressed affection for his family, which Kath included a 16-month-old son, and sympathy for the Barry family. But Olson said in the letters that he was not responsible for Jonna's death and identified someone he said was responsible and stated his hope that the person would be held accountable. And Kath, the name of the individual has never been released. This person who he indicated was involved. Attorney Isaacs would not state whether Olson's letter acknowledged his role in the crime. Jonna's father called Olson's suicide a coward's admission of guilt. If Olson wasn't the person who murdered his daughter, why did he kill himself? Mr. Barry added that he felt for any parent who had to bury a child, but his daughter never got the chance to write any letters to her family before she was killed. Mrs. Barry was equally devastated. She'd kept a journal since Jonna died of all the questions she wanted to ask her daughter's killer. In a phone interview with the Johnson City Press, she echoed her husband's sentiments that it was a coward's way out. She said that she had prayed that her family wouldn't have to go through a long trial, and maybe this was the answer to her prayers. Kath, this reminds me of Jennifer Shewitt. Yes. She was the one who was from Dickinson, Texas, I think. But she told investigators that she did not want her killer to commit suicide in jail. And that's exactly what he did. Right. But Mrs. Barry said in the end, she was just a broken hearted mom and she always would be. Although there will never be a judicial ruling of guilt or innocence, Mr. and Mrs. Barry are certain Taylor Olson was their daughter's killer. As Michael and Joan Barry waited first for Jonna's killer to be caught, and then for a trial that never happened, they turned their grief into action. Not only did Mrs. Barry work tirelessly on the passage of the Jonna Barry Act, which required DNA to be taken from anyone arrested for a violent crime, but when the $1.5 million funding wasn't included in the final bill, she fought to have it appropriated. Just over a year after the bill was enacted, the funding was allocated so the DNA testing could be implemented. So we talked previously about the fact that Mr. and Mrs. Barry delivered the wrapped presents that their daughter had to the needy children. In addition to that, they launched a Christmas children's charity drive with a local supermarket chain called the Jonna Barry Memorial Toy Drive so that needy kids could have gifts at Christmas. But the Barry family's good works were not finished. They also created a support group called Hope for Victims. And according to the website, Hope for Victims' purpose is fourfold. Speaking on behalf of victims' rights, providing support groups for families and friends of victims, advocating for legislation to promote DNA collection, and increasing public awareness in order to balance the scales of justice. We hope you all have a fantastic and what's the word I'm looking for? Blessed. Full Thanksgiving. <laughs> Satiating. That's stupid. Satiating. Satiating. Okay, well, let me start over. <laughs> I'm so putting that in there. <laughs> I think it's fine as it is. <laughs> ah.
And we hope you have a safe Thanksgiving. We hope you talk to all your friends and relatives who you see over those four days all about our podcast. Exactly. We invite you to share it. (laughs) And remind everyone, Patreon is a great gift. It's only $5 a month. $5. (laughs) Anyway, happy Thanksgiving. All right. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Join our Patreon family. Every time you go, bye, I I cringe. I know, which is why I do it. (laughs) Bye.